Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf is the affable producer, Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? Hello, Mick. I am uh, anxiously biting my nails today. Uh, We're waiting. You and I are both waiting to hear... Uh, the WGA is on its fifth day of negotiations with the studio CEOs and the AMPTP. There's a lot of buzz that there could be a deal in the works. Uh, oh, it's a promising sign when they're sitting together five days straight. Sure feels Including that. the weekend. Yeah. Yes. So I guess the big question is, uh, you know, when this airs, we may have an answer, we may not. But uh, have you finished your spec? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to. Uh, and I have the idea that I have not started writing yet because I've been in anticipation and I do have a screenwriting assignment that comes up uh, once the strike is over. Ooh. So I keep anticipating that that's going to be any moment and Got it. So, uh, no so reason to anticipate that to until start a, start yeah. a job uh, once this yeah. is all said and done. You know, I think the weirdest part is going to be taking meetings again. I got, I got, I got out of the habit of uh, <laughs> building those into my schedule. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, and, uh, no, likely I'll be Zoom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't. Do you prefer Zoom meetings or do you prefer in persons? I'd much rather be in person. Yeah, I do. I do too, especially for general meetings. I think you just don't forge the same connection over zoom uh absolutely you, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit and more for anything including uh doing the podcast that's I, true yes i greatly I prefer having the guests here at nice guy productions world headquarters um to be able to be face to face there's no lag there there is no um dip in sound when one person talks over another uh and just being able to look people in the eye face to face rather than through a two-dimensional screen makes a, a huge difference in, in how deep so. we go. I think so too. Uh, well, do you want to do some questions? Let's do it. We also have a surprise coming about midway through the show. So uh, let's dive in. Stay tuned. Yes. Uh, Abby asks, how was Spain? And I'm going to throw in and London. Uh, <laughs> Spain and London were great. I was uh, invited to uh, I love Spain. I've been there several times, but this has been to an area I'd never been to before, the Costa del Sol, which is kind of the Riviera of Spain. So very high-end yachts and uh, huge, huge hotels and resorts and things that I had no idea existed. But I was honored by the, uh, the film festival, fantastic film festival of the Costa del Sol, with what they call their unicorn award, unicorn, unicornio. Uh, award. You are a unicorn, Mick. Uh, uh, I guess I am. You can tell by the size of my nose. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> want want. But it was a, it was a great honor, and you know, critters are particularly uh, popular in Spain. So the movie they showed out of uh, the entirety of my film history was Critters 2, my first feature as a director. That's fun. And it, it was a lot of fun. And the award is is absolutely stunning. And, um, and it was a great time. And then it was basically uh, just fun in London. My wife was going to uh, be going on a trip with her sister-in-law, but there was a health issue that came up and they had to cancel. So I had extended my trip to include a trip to London and to visit friends and the like. So it was a great time just uh, on my own where I got to visit with Edgar Wright and Neil Marshall and Jed Shepard and, and, and see some theater. And it was really entirely recreational. And you uh, saw, you saw a spooky play. Yeah. Uh, 222, which is, uh, has gotten, it has closed now but it had gotten 
great rave reviews and it's a ghost story in the theater and i couldn't not do that i the day i got into uh, into london i checked the theater listings and saw it was playing at 6:30 that evening and i walked to the theater and uh, got my tickets and uh, went in that seems quite fortuitous it uh, was great great fun well good good uh i'm glad you had a nice trip it was fun to watch uh through the photos on social so uh, all right uh a, a let's let's get into some some heftier questions uh scott writes hey mick and joe if you were stranded on an island for seven days and were only able to watch one movie what are you watching the desert island movie question pops it's rears its ugly head um <laughs> That that's a tough one, but it's nice that it's only seven days, so it it doesn't have to be Not Groundhog forever. Day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be Groundhog yeah. Day every day. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people would choose something really lighthearted. I think one of the most rewatchable movies in history is Poltergeist. Mm. Uh, every time it's on, I have to watch the rest of it. Um, but. I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to go dark and cynical because a really great movie makes me feel good, even if it is dark and cynical and not uh, something that gives you joy and laughs and pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I take great pleasure in a well-crafted movie, no matter how dark it goes. Okay. So I'm going to go... For one of my favorite films, it was a total disaster when it came out in 1950, but Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole, also known as The Big Carnival. Oh, yeah. It's a wonderful film starring Kirk Douglas. It's so cynical, and it's about um, a uh, a man trapped in a mine cave-in, and Kirk Douglas is an alcoholic reporter who used to work in New York for the big papers and now is looking for a job at a podunk paper in New Mexico. And so he hears about this story and exploits it. He knows that there is an easy way to get to the guy in the mine, but wants to turn it into a big carnival and a big nationwide event by <laughs> not letting them know that. And they have to go to great pains that will take days and days and days to dig him out from the opposite direction. Well, I think that is a, a good sell. Uh, why do you think you could watch that every day for seven days straight, though? Well, I don't know that I would, but <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but that's what you have to do. That's the question. Well, it's just he just said the only movie that I would have for oh, seven okay. days. All right. you're, you're, but you're I don't need to watch too. it every day. But but I could because it's just so filled with a kind of Hollywood filmmaking that was so rare in the 1950s and 40s. Yeah. Hollywood was the dream factory. Yeah. You know, this this went in a direction that only Billy Wilder could pull off. And wow. it's, it's a best. fantastic film with Jan Sterling as the female lead. Um, but uh, but it's. Kirk Douglas is at his very best and nobody's trying to shoot for the happy ending. That was the norm for everything that came out of the dream factory in those days. Well, uh, our post producer, uh, Chris chimed in with a, with a message that said he would pick uh, the wizard of Oz, uh, <laughs> which, you know, I get there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of variety in that movie. I get that too. But when I was growing up in the days of network television, where there wasn't the selection of streaming and on demand sure. or even cable choices, it was on every year. Yeah. And we watched it every year. And huh. as an brilliant event. as it is, I think I've seen it enough. <laughs> That's it's how I felt about uh, when I, when I worked at Hollywood video, we could only play PG movies. Uh, and so when I was in college, a movie that was PG that we were all super excited about was Napoleon Dynamite. Oh. Uh, and we, <laughs> we played that movie every single day and it uh, eventually drove me insane. I think uh, a great but, movie, but I don't think I could watch it. Yeah, no, day. I saw it four times in the theater. I absolutely unabashedly love it, but yeah. uh 
you know, 30, 40 times at work, you kind of <laughs> kind of lose your mind a little bit. Uh, it's seared into my brain. When I wrote the question, the movie that popped into my head as I was like writing it down was uh, Lost in Translation. Um, ah. I think it's it's such like a mood and vibe piece, and it's it's funny, it's sad, it's bittersweet, it's it's an adventure, it's That's quiet. That's a great movie, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think it's just like there's so many different facets to it that I think if I had to watch something seven days in a row, I could get a lot out of watching it. Uh, that, I think it's uh, Sofia Coppola's best film, and it is oh, so so knowing and so bright and and you just feel the atmosphere of it i actually went to that hotel bar in japan when Did we you? were shooting masters of horror in tokyo oh that's really cool and it just that feeling of being jet lagged and otherworldly kind of it's the middle of the night and i don't know what time it is i can't feel what time it is but I know I'm in a haze that yeah. I'm not going to get out of that Bill Murray does so well, <laughs> but the atmosphere is, is laid in so beautifully by Coppola. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it really is a beautiful movie and it turns 20 this fall, which is oh, amazing. I know. Um, all right. Trouble writes, uh, hello, Mick and Joe, Mick, have you ever considered directing found footage horror movie? Uh, you've touched upon this style of shooting in the stand with the news crew scene. And in my opinion, it worked. Also, can you talk a little about that scene, how it was shots, your direction of the actors, etc.? Cheers. Yeah. Um, no, I've never wanted to shoot a found footage movie. <laughs> uh, although there are a handful of really great ones and uh, one cut of the dead comes to mind as maybe my favorite of all of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. Blair, which, which, which you were which you were uh, resistant to see at first too, because of your your typical aversion to these uh... to not only found footage but a zombie yes footage yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, we had to twist your arm, but you loved it once you watched it. It's a masterpiece. Uh, it's yeah. a masterpiece, but it's not something I want to do. I love the tools of cinema, the polished tools of cinema, the change of lenses, the use of color, the use of sound, um, post production techniques. Uh, everything that that requires more than the ragged video footage of of something that's immediate and handheld. Uh, like I say, some of them are masterpieces, but those are really in the minority. I think it's hard to to do the best filmmaking possible in a found footage film. And the whole point is to not use the tropes of of polished filmmaking to do that. When we did it in the stand, there's a scene he's talking about where uh, there is a news reporter played by Wendy Phillips, uh, who was also the mother in Fuzzbucket. And, uh, and the military is attacking people, uh, attacking the press and trying to keep them from the truth of the spread of this disease that they nicknamed Captain Trips. And so we did it all in one unbroken take because, and we shot it on video because we were the film crew or the news crew that was recording this. So I wanted to give it the veracity of the real thing. And it's interesting because when it played on television, because it was shot on video, it popped out feeling very different from the 16 millimeter film that the rest of the, uh, the miniseries was shot on. But the direction was, this is real. There are no cuts. There's no redos. We do it from beginning to end. And it ends with the cameraman being shot and the camera falling on its side and recording the end of it from there. So it was really just amping everything up and letting everybody know this is one take straight through, no fixes. So you know, we did several takes of it, obviously, but it was beginning to end and everybody was really on board and, and it gave it a very exciting veracity. And you never thought, man, I want to do a whole movie like that. <laughs> I never have. Uh, and I likely never will. I almost, there were a couple of times where I almost did. Um, I was, oh. I wrote an episode of Nightmares and Dreamscapes that did not get made when they made the series for TNT, the uh, series from Stephen King's stories. And um, it was 
too expensive. So they said, how about doing a found footage one instead? And I said, you know, that that's not really what I'm best at. And I, I don't think that's something that would be a good match for you or for me. And uh, the same thing happened with a Tales from the Crypt. Um, they were uh, having budgetary issues, and they asked me if I would do a found footage version, and and I begged off. I I just didn't think I would be the best person to do. Well, you it. have to you have to know uh, what your your strengths and weaknesses are too. Yeah, you know? and yeah. interests. And interest. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, that was that was very knowing of you. Uh, so all right, uh, Adam writes. Hi, Mick and Joe. I've seen the network TV version of Critters 2 in the past, which, despite being censored, features several new scenes, all of which were also included on the Blu-ray release. My question is, when that happens, are you and your team involved in any way? Does the network come to you and ask you to re-edit and make it longer, or does the studio give the network all the unused footage and it's up to them to go through and decide? You know, they're supposed to. It's one of the uh, rules that the Directors Guild has in its contractual agreements with the studios and the networks. This is a revelation to me. This question is the first time I heard that there was a television version that used alternate footage and oh, wow. additional scenes. Because the movie is like 88 minutes, I think. So. Sure most movie slots on network and, and cable and, and syndicated television are two hour slots. So there's lots of room for commercials, but um, I did not know that they padded it out. You know, uh, the additional footage, I haven't even looked at it on the Blu-ray. I don't know what they used, but um, you know, what was presented in the theater was what everybody agreed was the best version of the movie. Yeah. So any other version of Critters 2 certainly did not pass through my hands. So I don't know what it's like. Interesting. That is interesting. Have When you have done um, TV edits of your movies, have you been involved in where the commercial breaks hit? Or is that a choice that's made outside of your purview? It's made outside my purview. And I have not been asked to do many TV recuts because Sleepwalkers, yeah. you couldn't recut it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, I don't think yeah, it ever went That's not really on. TV friendly. <laughs> yeah, it, it went on pay TV and, sure. and streaming and the like. But, you know, that and, and Psycho, Psycho 4 was made for Showtime. So it never really got into syndication where it would be cut. And they were, they were R-rated movies when they came out. But I do remember... I don't remember which project it was, but I do remember doing a recut for television. I don't think it's Critters 2, though, but yeah. maybe maybe it was. I just don't remember that. It, you know, we are celebrating 35-year anniversary of Critters 2, so memory does fade over time. Fair. That's fair enough. Well, uh, trying to jog your memory just a little bit more and, and just in time for... Uh, spooky season the starter spooky season i've got a hocus pocus question for you okay uh, rob writes as a huge fan of hocus pocus i need to know if mick is responsible for the term yabos and chungs i'm 37 and still laugh like a nine-year-old every time i see the cage bully whimper the word chungs <laughs> yeah you know uh, we've talked about this before on the show, and I'm afraid I can't take credit for Yabos, uh, <laughs> which we have said before, but Chung's, I also can't take credit for. I would love to uh, tip my hat to Neil Cuthbert, who came in and did a comedy pass on it. There were several other versions uh, of the script, but I believe that Neil is responsible for both Yabos and Chung's. And they make me laugh too. So <laughs> I wish I could take credit for it. Although Yabos just feels like a word that was very much of its day. Yes. And, and even though it was invented in that day back in the early 90s, <laughs> um, it, it, it makes me laugh, but uh, I, I can't take credit for it. 
when I uh, was nine years old, uh, Yabos was a revelation. So uh, <laughs> thank you to you and Neil, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it may have even been invented by Neil because That's... it was certainly not a term I'd heard in use before I saw that first screening of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> All right. Uh, Paul writes, I'm a big fan of the Beatles and the movie A Hard Day's Night. I went to see it at my local theater a couple weeks ago, and it was great seeing it on the big screen. I've heard you mention that it's one of your favorite films. What specifically attracts you to this film, and what are the elements that make it a great film in your opinion? Well, it is filled with so much infectious joy and enthusiasm and excitement. The pace is great, and yet it's got all the wit of a Marx Brothers movie. You know, first of all, it helps to have been a huge Beatle fan. I was in junior high school when they came out on the Ed Sullivan show. And everybody the next day was talking about the Beatles. And so the entire 10 year length of their careers together was the peak of pop music, quality and history. But they're funny. The songs are fantastic. You just hit that first chord on a hard day's night and Everything is exciting. Everything just goes wildly propulsive. And each of the Beatles has a very specific cinematic personality, just like the Marx Brothers did. Although, thank God there's no Zeppo. Um, but the music, the songs are great. The, the movie is so funny. It's so propulsive. It's so filled with joy. And and its its enthusiasm is so infectious that it just brings you through that. That could easily be my Desert Island movie as well. Oh, oh, we might be changing our answer to the first question. Well, yesterday <laughs> I was interviewed for another show where they had me defend my choice for the one movie that is repeatable. Yeah. And so... It was hard to choose between that and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So I made a case for A and C, um, but it could just as easily have been a hard day's night. There you go. Well, I like that answer. Uh, hey, Mick, I, I think I hear uh, a knocking at the digital door. We have a couple guests. Okay. Uh, so why well, don't we let them into uh, our digital AMA chat room? We are going to talk about one of the great genre festivals uh, based here in Los Angeles called Beyond Fest. It is directed by three gentlemen, uh, two of whom are here with us, Evram Ursoy and Christian Parks. Come on in, gentlemen. Welcome to the slab. Hello. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having us. Great to see you guys again. And I was just saying it is it, it is such a massive and fantastic festival, one of the most important, certainly in the Los Angeles area, and that it's done in conjunction with the American Cinematheque, which gives it even more credibility um, and accessibility to really top shelf guests. So what do we have in store this this year? Oh my God, where, where do we begin? I, I think, um, I mean, we've got a total, Ev, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've got 55 films uh, in, in total. Um, and then across that, we've got a series of world premieres, West Coast premieres, LA premieres, and then a series of repertory screenings. And those repertory screenings, they're based around anniversaries, restorations, and then obviously key talent who were coming out. Um, and so that range is it's everything from the king of the box office, James Cameron coming out for the abyss um, that we're doing at the Fox theater, uh, a huge landmark theater in, um, uh, in Westwood all the way to uh, Caligula, the ultimate cut restored with, with Malcolm McDowell in person. There is um, a celebration of the great Roger Corman um, with a sliver, just a tight sliver of some of his films, Rock and Roll High School, uh, Grand Theft Auto, Piranha, Raven, uh, and then Roger Corman himself. And he's going to be joined by uh, a bunch of his collaborators from across the years. Um, but then we've also got, you know, new films, um, like the Can Palm Door winner, Anatomy of a Fall, 
um, the new Paul Mescal movie, actually two Paul Mescal movies, Faux and um, All of Our Strangers. Uh, and then we've got some really great new horror movies, uh, films like um, uh, When Evil Lurks, uh, we've got the world premiere of It's a Wonderful Knife, which is written by Michael Kennedy from uh, Freaky Fame. Uh, Dream Scenario, which is not necessarily a horror movie. It's a satire, but what happens in it is truly horrific. Um, and then, so those are mostly in the Arrow, uh, which is presented by Neon. And then over in the Las Feliz 3, um, there's an incredible program there. Everything there is 100% free. Um, and there is, I believe, 25 screenings there. Um, and mm -hmm. most of those world premieres, U.S. premieres. Uh, Ev, do you want to list off some of those? Yeah, sure. I mean, we got some great documentaries. You know, we got Spooktacular, which is about the first Halloween theme park in the U.S. And some great guests coming for that, including the founder of the park. So it's going to be a great event. And you know, Severin's got two great documentaries. One's Entered the Clones of Bruce. That's about the clones of Bruce Lee. Premiered at Tribeca. Really entertaining, really interesting story. But we also have Mancunium Man, which is about Cliff Twemlow, who is this little-known British genre filmmaker. And it's about the industry and the uh, sort of group he built in north of England. Really amazing story. Um, we got the great shorts blocks. There's four of them every year. They get bigger, you know, lots of new and exciting filmmakers. We got a couple of uh, great horror films. We got History of Evil, which is produced by Baba Kamvari, you know, who did Under the Shadow. Um, we got uh, Omen, which won at Cannes. It's one of the best newcomers awards. It's this uh, Congolese rapper. It's his first film directing. It's Belgium's official entry for the Oscars this year. We got Femme, which won big at Berlin. It's this queer thriller, really sizzling, really sexy, really complex. Um, we get Greg Araki coming. We got an Irish horror that I'm absolutely in love with called All You Need Is Death. That's the world premiere of that. So, you know, there's something for everyone. We got Vincent Must Die, another can selection that was absolutely really uh, just blew us away. Um, and so hopefully everyone can find something that they want to see from rep to new films. That's fantastic. And we also have joining us the third peg of this triumvirate here, Mr. Grant Moninger, uh, okay. joining us. So in the beginning of Beyond Fest, the Cinematheque was open at the Egyptian Theater, which had been remodeled um, by the Cinematheque from it being one of the great classic motion picture grand movie houses on Hollywood Boulevard. Netflix has bought and is restoring the theater to its original grandeur because the Cinematheque had to build a box inside the original theater because it was just too extensive and expensive to restore it to its original grandeur. So when is that going to reopen? Uh, let's see, what can I say here? I've walked through uh, parts of the restoration uh, and it, it looks amazing. Uh, it looks a lot, as you've seen online, it looks a lot like the 1920s version. They've gotten rid of the 90s black box. Uh, so Beyond Fest will, uh, once it's open, return to the Egyptian theater. But uh, this fall, I can definitely say this fall, it just we just barely missed Beyond Fest this year, but we'll be back next year for sure. So tell me about the roots of it. Um, Christian, tell me where everything started with this festival. And you should, by the way, give us the dates that it's running because. Uh... Yeah. Um, so so we actually start, we start this Tuesday, which this Tuesday won't mean anything in podcast world. Uh, Tuesday, <laughs> September 26th, that's opening night. And we open with uh, the creator. Uh, which which I, will be, I will be there for you uh, better joe uh <laughs> so it, it it's it's an incredible science fiction movie from Garth evans um edit sorry and then immediately after that we've got a film called kill which is um an indian film it got its world premiere at midnight madness um 
It is hands down the most violent Indian movie ever made. Uh, there are more kills in this than I think probably a hundred years of Bollywood cinema. It is so outrageously excessive over the top. It is a perfect, perfect Beyond Fest film. And they are not known for <laughs> extreme violence in India. No, and that's why this is such an outlier and it fits so perfectly. And we fought really hard to get this film because we were like, this is the audience will understand this as much as anyone in the world. Well, um, how long is the festival? So we close on Tuesday, October the 10th. So it's it's two weeks. It's two weeks wow. of absolute chaos. Um, that's a beefy festival. Where, yeah, yeah. Grant, you were there from the beginning. Where where did it start? How did it start? You know, Christian just walked in one day. He was just some random guy off the street. And uh, he told me, whether it's true or not, that he had the band Goblin, which uh, uh, agreeing to play live in person, first ever appearance in the United States. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I said, if he brings Goblin to the Egyptian, then we will uh, build out, I'll give him 12 days and we'll work and build out a fest together. We'll make it happen. Not thinking there's any chance in the world that he's going to be able to bring Goblin uh, to the Egyptian. And then on your side of the story, Christian? I walked into the Cinematheque. Um, Grant, I, I knew Grant as a programmer. I didn't know who he was, but someone was like, oh yeah, he's that guy. So I walked in and I was like, I, I need to speak to Grant, please. And they pointed me in Grant's direction. And I said to him, I said, hey, I've got a film festival. Um, I don't know if we had a name then, um, but I also said to Grant's point, I said, and I've got Goblin um, and we're gonna play. So that's how we're gonna launch this film festival. The truth is, I did not have Goblin. Um, <laughs> I had I had spoken to a booking agent who was thinking about having them play some shows in the US. Um, but when I spoke to the booking agent, I told him, I basically bluffed on both sides. I told him that I had the the uh, the Egyptian theater which, you know, just an incredible 600-seat epic, epic theater in the heart of Hollywood. I told him that I had that. and um, So you course, lied, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. on both sides. Um, I, it's called a parallel path, I believe, is, is the correct um, But yeah, but Grant was crazy enough to step off, and the booking agent was crazy enough to step off. And I was crazy enough at that time because I had to book the band, which was incredibly expensive. Um, and I had just enough money in my bank account. And I vividly remember, and Grant knows this story as does that, but I vividly remember I had to wire the money and there was a cut off to wire the money to get Goblin to perform. Um, and Spencer, who was running Death Waltz Records at the time, um, I was like, do you think people are going to go? And he's like, I think so. And I remember hitting send on the transfer button. And a week later or two weeks later, we put tickets on sale and it just exploded. And it was beyond any any of our wildest dreams um, that people were going to come out. I went, well, you know, Claudio Simonetti uh, scored two of the episodes of Masters of Horror. Yeah, yeah. So I had to see my friend Claudio there. And uh, what a magnificent show. Yeah. Uh, Evram, how did you become involved? Oh, I joined the next year and um, it was oh, it was super simple. I was talking to Spencer. Spencer, uh, you know, is a mutual friend of Christian's and mine too and, and a part of the festival. Um, and we were just talking about something. I'd been, been trying to get works with some festivals and it wasn't working out. So I wasn't, you know, feeling great. And he was like, well, why don't you come and help us out at Beyond Fest. And I was like, okay, I mean, you know, that sounds fun. And then I met Christian and we hit it off and I met Grant and we hit it off and I've never looked back, to be honest. Well, it's, go ahead. And Mick, we have to be thankful and very grateful that first year because we were just using the name Beyond Fest and pretending like it always existed. But like <laughs> Richard Donner coming for The Omen and Joe Dante coming out and Clive Barker, Without the support of those guys from the first year, like we wouldn't be uh, a festival. So we're always grateful all those people back on that first year. Yeah, that was, that was two thousand. That was two thousand twelve, right? Or two thousand eleven? 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it was 12. Yeah. I got to Los Angeles in 2010. So I've been like out here almost the entire time. The festival has been here and it really has become such a tradition. It's, it's, it's almost like a religious experience. Like it's, it's amazing what you guys built. Like I'm, I'm like literally in awe of it every fall. Uh, Thank you. Well, it's an integral part of the local and international horror scene. You know, yeah. it is, it's a predictor. It is a supporter. It's an enthusiast, uh, you know, a, a bringing together a bonding of genre fans over things that are out of reach in most circumstances. And it's also been a wonderful place where I, I've been invited to moderate some of the discussions at Beyond Fest several times. We've done a couple of our live shows there, including uh, David Cronenberg, yep. uh, and and hope to do uh, many more. But tell me what makes this festival unique among the Fantasias and Sitches and uh, all of the genre festivals that are around the world, all of which are wonderful, but they each have their own personality. What do you think is the hallmark of Beyond Fest? I, I um yeah I, I can take that one because I feel pretty impassioned about this and thank you for the kind words Mick it it, it really does it's it becomes very emotional emotional for me when I hear people like yourself talking about and you Joe talking about Beyond Fest in such a way because it was never envisioned to to be what it has become it was um, the, the the truest inspiration behind it it comes back to the Cinematheque and it was one of the reasons why um, why I wanted to, to build this with the Cinematheque. Um, it was, uh, when I moved to Los Angeles, I first moved to Los Angeles in, in 1996. And, um, you know, Los Angeles back then was obviously very, very different. The internet was very different. Community was very different. It was a really disparate city. And one of the things with Los Angeles, which everyone, and they still feel to this day, it takes you a long time to figure this city out because it's so sprawling. And it takes you a long time to find your people. And the Cinematheque they used to have in the summer, there was this week-long program of science fiction and fantasy. And it was just a, a melting pot that would go from a Mike Takashi movie in the morning to a Ray Harryhausen movie in the afternoon to a Universal Monsters movie in the night. It didn't make any sense. Paradise. Yeah, but that's it. But to us, and so I remember going and I didn't know anybody, but I sat in the Egyptian and I knew, I didn't know anyone else in this theater, but we were all there and we were brought together by the commonality of love for these types of movies. And I felt like I was at home and I felt like these were my people at a point in time when I felt completely displaced and I didn't have my people. And that really struck a nerve. And so the, the idea for the creation of Beyond Fest, I moved away from Los Angeles for a few years and I really missed the rep scene um, that was in Los Angeles. But I'd also had an opportunity to travel to a lot of those festivals that you'd mentioned. And, and I just couldn't understand why that didn't exist here in LA. And so that's when I walked into the theater and, and started talking to Grant. But the goal, and this gets back to the point you were saying, like what differentiates Beyond Fest? Um, the goal for Beyond Fest is to bring together as many people as possible. And that's why you'll have the most, literally one of the most insane gore fests like Adam Chaplin playing a day after Anatomy of a Fall, a Palm Door winner, because there are so many different groups of people in Los Angeles. And our goal is to bring them together, really just to celebrate this form of left field genre cinema in whatever form it is. Um, and it's very much, we are in service of film fans and filmmakers, and that's it. It's not about Grant. It's not about Ev. It's not about me. It's not about anyone else that works year round on this thing. It's exclusively about giving something great to the people of LA, whether you're, as I say, a fan or whether you're a filmmaker or in between. And, you know, a large part, and it's something we've been able to do for the last, I think, like four or five years with the support of, of our sponsors, we've been able to program 
uh, a multitude of free screenings because you know times are really difficult, in particular right now when you think about the way that the strike has affected people in Los Angeles. So you can go to any of those films, at Los Feliz 3, and there's about 25 of them, and they're all completely free courtesy of the support that we've gotten this year. It's, it's Neon, uh, the indie distributor, who's supporting us. Um, in the past, it's been Shudder. Um, but that's a real integral part of this, being able to give people the opportunity to see films in a theater with great presentation uh, in the American Cinematheque theaters. That's everything. But it's really just about, it's about community, Mick. That's, that, that's what it is. And giving people a home um, and making them feel like they've got something that is specifically built for them. And they really built it. Because I don't know if I can I say this or not, but we had no budget. There was no Excel budgets for the first seven <laughs> years. <laughs> it was just a, a risk saying, hey, if we make these events, we think people are going to buy tickets to them. And we just had to feed off the ticket holders. We didn't have a sponsor. And you know, this year we have Neon. Past we've had other sponsors, but not we had no sponsorship. So it was like just counting on the fans to be rabid enough to sell out all of these uh, screenings so that we could put it on again the next year. And we just did it and did it. So it's really the fest that the fans built. Yeah. And and all the all the ticket sales, everything goes to the Cinematheque. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, the Cinematheque, it's a, you know, they program one of the most incredible slates in the world year round, 24 seven. It's a nonprofit and people don't recognize that. You think that the theater's full and you think it's making a ton of money. It is not cheap running single screen theaters anywhere in the world, but in particular in Los Angeles. In other countries, they survive by, you know, government subsidies, um, arts endowments. The Cinematheque is fighting every single day. And so I'm really proud of the fact that for the last, this is our 11th year, everything goes into the Cinematheque. You know, yeah, Beyond Fest as, a, as, as an entity, it doesn't have a bank account. And if it did, it, it would have zero dollars in it. It would have <laughs> minus zero dollars. Um, we, we've got to pay for the Arrow Sleepwalkers Theater over there. So. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I need to return. We need to screen it again there. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so I've been lucky enough to go to genre festivals all around the world. We were talking about Motel X. We were talking about Sitches and Fantasia. And and they're all over the world. Evram, why do you think that there are genre festivals internationally as opposed to other genre? Like there's no Western festivals to speak of. There are no romantic comedy festivals to speak of. Evram, why do you think the horror genre in particular is so embraced in the festival culture? Well, I think one of the... One of the key things is what Christian's talking about, and that is that a lot of this crowd is people who feel isolated and, and not part of the mainstream, you know, like outcasts and misfits and people who have certain tastes and people who never quite fit, you know, like, and then you discover this, this language that we all love, whether it's horror or sci-fi or fantasy, and you know, through this language, we discover each other. And then suddenly you're part of a community that understands you, you know, like when I was 11, I wanted to watch Friday the 13th and the people who did with me became my friends because that's the stuff I was interested in. Whereas most of my uh, contemporaries were into football or other sports. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to go and watch horror films that scare me, you know, witless and I can't sleep for weeks. And when you go anywhere in the world, it's a common language. You know, you land in Portugal, you go to Lisbon, and the moment you go, well, you know, wasn't wasn't the exorcist great? You suddenly have 30 people who want to talk about it. And you go to Sitges, this tiny town on the coast of, you know, the Catalan uh, coastline, and, and there's hundreds upon hundreds of people just there to watch horror films and to talk about them and to show off their tattoos or to show off the poster designs. And I think genre just travels... This summer I was in Beirut. Uh, so the Middle East is a big passion of mine for genre cinema because it's always been neglected, you know, and the stories that come out of the Middle East are often determined by Western funds. So there's a very specific language and storytelling that, that is sort of pushed. Um, whereas genre is, is a 
beautiful option because it allows them to open up how they talk about their own history and their own events. You know, films like Ashkal and Rebel really pushing the envelope. And you go to Beirut, you know, somewhere that is very foreign when you land because it's not what you're used to. And the moment you start talking about genre, you find the same common language, the same people. So it's just something that connects us. It's something that seems to bond the outcasts. You know, absolutely we're not the ones who are first in line for the Marvel movies when they come out. Yeah. We're, but we are there for the Lithuanian horror fest that nobody's ever seen before. Yeah. And so, it's and you see it. Sorry, Mick, I was just gonna say, I mean, you see it, you know, you see it in the box office too. You see horror performing over and over and over again throughout COVID. The only genre that consistently worked were horror movies. You come out of COVID, it's the same thing. They're posting crazy numbers on really small budgets. Um, it's like the one thing that you can truly bank on um, from, a, from a studio standpoint outside of a gigantic superhero movies. And even those, like, they're fumbling. So there's a rush to make more horror movies, which while it is... Uh, you know, cynically, it's an exploitative play. But our take on it is all ships rise. Like the more people that are making horror, the more people that are watching horror, the more studios that are investing in it, the bigger and better this genre is going to be. Um, and here. yeah, wouldn't wouldn't it be amazing to have horror movies being treated with the same level of investment and respect that crazy Marvel movies get. I mean, like, what, Dream what could on, you, Christian. Yeah, it would be amazing. <laughs> but, yeah, but the thing is, is, is money talks. Um, and you see it. You see it with so many of the different production companies that are being set up and the different production shingles that are being set up within major studios specifically to target and to get um, uh, genre fans out to the theater. And, and you see it in the programs of the mainstream big festivals where genre is, you know, seeping in more and more at Cannes, at Venice, at Toronto. You know, horror isn't just one thing. There's so much variety in it. It can be used to talk about genocide or adolescent horror or, you know, growing up or just like you said, the Lithuanian slasher. But all of it is sort of spreading and that's really heartening to see. So let's say the three of you are on a budget and you are going to attend one event at Beyond Fest this year. Grant, what would be the ticket you would buy with your last 10 bucks? Boy, well, there's there's two. I don't know if that's cheating. I know there's 55 movies playing. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll pick one that I just, because I've, I've shown this film so many times and I'm just excited to be able to show it this way. But uh, Rialto has the uh, new restoration of The Wicker Man, uh, oh, which wow. is one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, it's I actually saw that on its test release in San Diego without realizing it was a test release. Wow. So I just saw there's a new Christopher Lee movie opening, and I can't wait, and was there opening day, not realizing wow. I was part of a test market. Wow, that's amazing. Well, this time, Britt Eklund will be there. So wow. that's about wow. as good as you can uh, get. So um, we've shown it many times. This is the first time we can show the restoration and with Britt Eklund. So there's my last dollar right there. And Christian, how about you? I, I don't know how to top Grant, to be honest. I mean, well, you have your own choice. You got yeah, especially, especially being English, like Wicker Man has meant so much to me throughout my entire life. Um, the Citizen Kane of horror films. It, it really is. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with. Okay. I'm going to pick two films, Mick. I just found an extra 10 bucks. Um, I'm going with um, Macon Blair's completely insane, over-the-top remake, revisit. I don't even know how to describe it. Um, he has brought the Toxic Avenger back to life with Peter Dinklage uh, as, as Toxie. Um, that thing is completely outrageous. It is nuts. Wow. And Kevin Bacon is in it, and Kevin, Kevin Bacon, and Elijah Wood, Elijah yeah. Wood, is in they're it. both crazy in this movie. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's <laughs> it, it's nuts. And then at the complete other end of the spectrum, 
um because yes i'm double dipping there is a film that comes out december 22nd i think i might have that date wrong um it's from searchlight it's called all of us strangers it is um it is a, a contemporary ghost story also uh an english film so i'm i'm drafting on my wicker man here um it is one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking films you will ever see is wrapped up against the backdrop of a of a ghost story it stars paul mescal um grant and i had the good fortune to see it and we were like as a as a couple of old guys we 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 were shook uh coming out of there because it is just it is such such a special unique movie um and to be able to screen something like that next to Toxic Avenger, that really speaks to the, the kind of like the, the spectrum of Beyond Fest. But that's how we watch movies, right? I mean, like yeah. we all just watch tons of different things. So, okay, yeah. Evram, you know it's coming. It's your turn now. So, what okay. is. Don't, don't let us down, Ed. <laughs> well, I'm going to cheat a little as well. I'm going to let the, keep the 10 bucks because remember, LF3 is free. So, that's right. 25 free bucks. screenings. And what we're going to do is uh, there is uh, two films I absolutely, uh, I, I mean, I love. Um, one is called Ripple, and it's a graduation film from Denmark. It was the almost the last thing I booked, and it's phenomenal. It's uh, a take on the obsession with true crime and the podcasts. And it's like if, if someone did a Magnolia-like structured thriller, about a serial killer in Denmark and the obsession around them and how this spreads like a ripple through the ages. It's phenomenal. For a first film, it's absolutely stunning. And then the other one that I would, again, you can have two popcorns because, you know, we saved the money here. The Seeding, which is Barnaby Clay's film, which played Tribeca, and it's so good. It's one I couldn't forget since seeing, and I just knew I had to have. It's about this man who basically gets trapped in a valley on the outskirts of uh, California and encounters a feral pack of children who just live in the wild. Ooh. Just sinister and unsettling. It's exactly the sort of stuff I love. Oh, that sounds great. Well, gentlemen, thank you for your passion. Thank you for Beyond Fest. Thank you for joining us here. Evry Mersoy and Christian Parks and Grant Moninger. Can't wait to see what unspools and uh, and meet all of the genre fans in the, the greater Los Angeles area. Awesome. Thanks, Mick. Thanks, Joe. Thank, thank you, guys. You thanks. And thank thanks, you. everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening to an expanded AMA. And uh, send us your questions. Joe will tell you how. Uh, you can send them to Mick on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM uh, or to me at Joe Russo tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram respectively, or to our email, uh, ask Mick anything at gmail.com. And Grant, how do we reach the Cinematech? Uh, you can go to americancinematech.com and become a member. We're member supported. So go there and then check us out at the Arrow Las Vegas 3 and soon to be the Egyptian Theater. Great. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.